If you're new here or newer here, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life. And as a church family, we are currently going through uh, the book of Galatians. And so if you have your Bible, uh, either in print or on uh, perhaps a device of some sort, go ahead and head to Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, small little book in your New Testament after the Gospels. As you find your place there, I just wanted to make you aware one of the things that we've noticed over the past year, year and a half, is that, uh, thank God, we're getting a a lot of people kind of in the the 18 to 25, kind of the college age, young single demographic. And so we are going to be launching a a thing for you guys. I'm not sure what we're calling it, but we're launching this thing for you guys at some point. You'll hear more about it in the fall. Um, But we're doing a couple of summer hangouts. The next summer hangout, specifically for you guys, young 18, 25-year-olds, is going to be next Sunday afternoon, 2 p.m. We're going to go tubing uh, down the the French Broad. And so if you want more information about that, you can see Pastor Jonathan in the lobby. You could also email him at jjones at nlcca.org. Or you could just show up at Zen Tubing at 2 p.m. next Sunday, and we'll have a good time. But looking forward to getting that whole deal launched this fall and really plugging in with our young college age and uh, young singles. Now, we are in week four of our Galatians series, and so I don't have time to go back through and uh, recap the last uh, three weeks. If you've missed any of those messages, you can catch up uh, on, our, on our website but here's, here's kind of the, the gist or the summary of what's going on. Paul has gone through this area called Galatia, so modern-day Turkey. Uh, he's preaching about uh, this Jesus guy to all of these uh, pagans. And miraculously, a bunch of these, these pagans with no like, concept of who God is, they actually believe the gospel. They, they confess Jesus as God. They're baptized. Paul goes around. He's planting all of these churches for these new followers of Jesus to kind of grow in their faith. Everything was just going amazing until all of a sudden it wasn't. You know, this problem arose. These, these false teachers infiltrated. They snuck into these churches. They began to teach these new believers that they needed Jesus plus a bunch of re- religious rules to be acceptable to God. So, right, Paul said, hey, listen, all you need is faith in Jesus. Jesus has done everything on your behalf on the cross in the empty tomb. These false teachers came in and said, no, 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 that's not true. That's half of the equation. You do have to love and follow Jesus, but here's a whole bunch of other things that you have to do if you want to be acceptable to God. And so Paul is having none of it. He's writing this letter back to these new Christians in Galatia to remind them of the simple gospel, to remind them of the real gospel, to remind them of the Jesus plus nothing else gospel. So that's kind of the the 60-second rewind. And so if you would, uh, let's pray together and ask God uh, to help us as we dive into his word in just a moment. Father, as we just sang, you are good. You are truly a good God. Everything good in this world Everything good in our life is from your hand. And yet, Father, for many of us, if we're being honest this morning, we come here burdened. We come into this room with heavy hearts. Many of us are wrestling, uh, Father, with deep pain, disappointment, betrayal. Many of us are grappling with 
heavy situations, heavy circumstances in and around our lives, God. And so our confession this morning before we even get started would just be that we need you. Father, we need to hear from you. We need to hear your words. We need words of life. We need words of hope from you. And so, God, would you, would you speak to us now through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit? And we ask all these things in the good name of Jesus. Amen. All right, Galatians chapter 2, we wrapped up, finished off on verse 10 last week. So we're going to dive right back into uh, this letter in verse 11 this week. You can read along with me. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, uh, but when Cephas, that he's talking about the Apostle Peter. Cephas was another name for Peter. When he came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before a certain man came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. He's talking about all these brand new pagan people that just had come to faith in Jesus. Peter was eating with them. But when they came, that is these false teachers came to town, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. These are the kind of the legalistic, uh, pharisaical, false teachers that Paul's addressing. Now understand, this, this is probably one of the most shocking stories in the entire New Testament. I mean, you, you have to understand the gravity of what's happening here. You have the two unquestionable heavyweights of the early church movement, and Peter and Paul squaring off, and they're doing it publicly. Talk about awkward, right? Have you ever been in a situation where you're perhaps with a group of friends or a couple of friends, and they get into it, and you're just kind of sitting there, and you're, just, you're looking for a rock to crawl under. You could just feel the tension in the air. You could cut it with a knife. That, that's kind of the feeling that the people would have had watching Paul confront Peter, this heavyweight of the faith. Now, he confronts Peter for a very specific and important reason, and here's why. Peter was eating with these Gentile Christians, these formerly pagan Christians, as he should have been. He was enjoying his freedom in Jesus. We can perhaps picture Peter uh, chowing down on a bacon cheeseburger with these new Christians. Uh, the, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians are united now. They're doing life together. They're eating together. They're worshiping together. It's this beautiful picture of unity because you see the, the gospel crushes the divides of racism wherever it goes. Crushes the divides of socioeconomic divides and political allegiances. All of that. The early church was just this beautiful picture of people who were really nothing alike in life, but they became one family together in Jesus. And it's all going great until these false teachers, these Judaizers show up, these legalistic religious people who believed that you had to become a Jew before you could follow Jesus. They show up and say, hey, the apostle James sent us from Jerusalem to straighten you guys out. We see later on in the book of Acts that James actually uh, didn't send them, but they show up under false pretenses. They say, hey, James sent us, and so you better listen to us. And Peter's there. Again, you can kind of imagine him there sitting there with his bacon cheeseburger, and he kind of panics in the moment, right? These guys, these really important-sounding religious guys show up, and you can kind of picture Peter taking that bacon cheeseburger and kind of slipping it behind his back, 
you know, and then he kind of, he drops it, and then he, he switches tables. Like, he won't even sit with uh, the Gentile Christians anymore. He goes and he sits at the table with the Judaizers. And you, got, you just got to love Peter, right? Peter, this brash, bold, sword-wielding, kind of ferocious warrior one second, and the very next, a complete whimpering coward, Right? One second, you remember the story in the gospel, he swears to Jesus that he will die fighting before they ever arrest Jesus. The next scene in the gospels, he's denying Jesus not once, but three times to a teenage girl who recognizes him, right? He's like, man, I don't, I don't even know the guy. I've never even seen that guy in my life. Peter's life is proof that being, listen, being a massive failure at times in your life does not disqualify you from being used in incredible ways in God's kingdom. And I don't know about you, but that's an encouragement to me. And here's the thing, guys. Peter, of all people, knew better. Peter, of all people, knew better. You know, think back to the story in the book of Acts. If you were here uh, last summer, we went through uh, the book of Acts. There's a story in Acts chapter 10 where Peter is praying on top of his roof. And he's, he's praying, and God gives him a vision while he's in prayer. And the vision is this. There's a sheet that sort of unfolds from heaven. And inside of that sheet are all of these uh, unclean animals that Jewish people couldn't eat. So like all the good stuff like pigs and shrimp and all that kind of stuff. And there's a voice that comes from heaven and it says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And what's Peter's response? Peter's response is, no, Lord. I've never eaten anything that's unclean. I'm not going to start now. And so they go back and forth. Three times the Lord tells Peter, listen, don't call unclean what I have made clean. And he has no idea what's going on. Peter has no idea kind of the significance of this vision and audibly hearing God's voice. And right about around the same time, there's this uh, Roman commander named Cornelius. And an angel appears to Cornelius and he says, hey, listen, there's this dude, Peter. He's got a message for you. I want you to send your servants and bring Peter. And so uh, Cornelius sends the servants. The servants grab Peter. They take him back to Cornelius. By the time Peter gets back there, Cornelius has gathered his house full of people. So he's got all of his family. He's got his friends. And Peter walks into the house with all these Gentiles, all these pagan people. And he says, hey, look, you guys know that it's unlawful for me to even associate with you guys. Right? You guys are Gentiles. I'm a Jew by religious law. I shouldn't even be in the same, same room with you guys, but God has given me a vision, and he's told me not to call unclean what you have made clean. And then Peter, being the bold, brash guy that he is, he just launches into a sermon on Jesus. He just launches right into the gospel. As Peter is preaching the gospel to these pagans, they begin to believe. They begin to hear that there's a God in heaven, that loves them so much that he actually sent Jesus to, to die, to atone, to pay for their sins, that he didn't stay dead, but he actually rose again. And they hear this and they start believing in it. As they hear Peter preaching, the Holy Spirit actually falls on them. They start speaking in tongues. They start praising God. And listen, Peter witnesses all of this with his own eyes. He saw God intervene and save these Gentiles, right? He saw them believe in Jesus. He saw them filled with the Holy Spirit. And now, just a little while later, in Galatians, he's refusing to even eat with the same people because he wants to impress these legalistic Judaizers. There's this other time in the Gospels where uh, Peter's in a boat with the rest of the disciples, and uh, a huge storm comes up, and it's frightening. 
And all of a sudden, they see uh, Jesus walking to them on the water in the storm. And at first, they kind of lose their minds. They think it's a ghost. But as he gets closer, they realize that it's Jesus. And Peter says, uh, Jesus, is it okay if I come out and meet you? Like, who, first of all, who asked that question? It's a storm. Why do you want to get out of the boat? But Peter, being Peter, says, hey, Jesus, can, can I come out to you? And Jesus says, uh, yeah, Peter, c- come on. So Peter steps out. He's on the water. Everything looks to be going well. And all of a sudden, he takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he puts his eyes on the circumstance of the situation around him. He starts watching the, the wind and the waves and what happens to Peter. He begins to sink. See, here, here's the thing about Peter. Peter, as long as he has his eyes on Jesus, incredible things begin to happen in and through his life. But as soon, as soon as he takes his eyes off of Jesus, he becomes like the biggest loser in the room. Peter's life is just really, it's a microcosm of most of our lives. When we take our eyes off of Jesus, we stumble and we fall. We make messes of our lives very quickly, do we not? And so I think the lesson just from watching Peter right there is to keep your eyes on Jesus, friend. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Verse 13, Paul continues. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. That's Peter, right? So they're watching Peter. They're saying, hey, Peter's doing it. must be okay. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas, that is Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So the Jewish believers, they see Peter being a hypocrite. And because he's so respected, because he's a a, a kind of a leader of the early church movement, they begin to do the same thing. They get sucked into his hypocrisy. So they separate from their Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. They begin to treat them like second-class Christians. And Paul says, even Barnabas, you guys remember Barnabas. Barnabas, who's like this, like this stout model of what a Christian leader should be. Even Barnabas, Paul says, because of Peter's hypocrisy, gets sucked into this whole thing. While this is going on, Paul shows up. He shows back up into Antioch. Uh, from some of his missionary journeys, his church planting journeys. He sees this hypocrisy being fueled by none other than Peter himself. And listen, Paul is having none of it. Paul's having none of it. He goes right up to Peter face to face, right up to Peter eyeball to eyeball. Now, listen, you have to imagine this scene here. This is like the two titans uh, of the faith squaring off in public. This is like Ali versus Frazier for some of you who are a little bit older just epic. For, for, for those of you who are younger, this would be like, like MJ, like Michael Jordan going one-on-one with LeBron, right, in the prime of their careers. Now, that would be a slaughter. Michael Jordan would kill him. Let's just make that clear. But nevertheless, epic, right? People would want to watch this. And everybody's watching this. You got a picture of him, like, getting the, popping the popcorn, getting it ready, getting the Coke. Like, man, this is going to be a heavyweight bout. This is going to be incredible. Now, listen, we have every reason to believe historically that Peter took this correction from Paul well. Historically, as we saw last week, these two guys, they partnered together. They agreed upon the simple gospel, the Jesus plus nothing gospel. 
We know that Paul at least once, probably twice, went to Peter's house, stayed with him for a couple of weeks at a time. I think we have every reason to believe that these two guys were friends. But listen to me, Peter slipped up and Paul called him on it because the gospel was at stake. Not only was the gospel at stake, but Paul called Peter on it because he loved Peter enough to challenge him when he needed it. And so I want us to see two things uh, that are really important here quickly before we move on. The first one is this. Hypocrisy is contagious. Hypocrisy is contagious. It's a spiritual virus that spreads, which is why it's so toxic and why it's so critical that we ruthlessly cut out hypocrisy from our own hearts and lives. Now, I've heard this a million times. You have too. What's the number one criticism of the church and Christianity? Hypocrites. Hypocrites. I would believe in God. I would follow Jesus. But his people are hypocrites. I would go to church. I would be involved with his kingdom. But everybody I know that professes his name is a hypocrite. Now, I would argue that hypocrisy isn't a Christian problem. I would argue that hypocrisy is a human problem. But the reality remains that a life changed by Jesus should look increasingly more like Jesus. And listen, all all hypocrisy is, is allowing there to be a gap between who you really are and who you allow other people to think you are. Right? It's the gap that you allow to exist between who you really are when nobody else is around, when nobody is looking, and who you allow people to believe you are. That's hypocrisy. It's wearing a mask here and then going to your office and putting another mask on. It's wearing one mask around your Christian friends and then putting another mask on around your non-Christian friends. Hypocrisy is just the height of people pleasing. And the issue with it is this. We all tend to become like the people that we hang out with. So listen, if you hang out with people that are hypocrites, if you hang out with people that wear multiple masks, if you spend time with people that don't take their walk with Jesus seriously, it won't be long before you find yourself drifting in that direction. Conversely, if you root yourself in friendships with people that love Jesus, people that are living for his kingdom, you'll find that your heart begins to drift in that direction as well. See, hypocrisy is contagious. It's a disease. It's a disease, and we all need a cure for that disease. Paul is about to give us that cure. But before he does, I want to make a second observation, and it's this. Love requires confrontation, oftentimes. Real love, real friendship, real care, oftentimes demands confrontation in a loving way. Listen, do you think it was easy for Paul to confront Peter? Do you think it was, do you think it was fun for him? Do you think that he looked forward to confronting the biggest figure in the early church movement, you want to talk about intimidating. Remember, Peter's the same guy that whipped out a sword and and chopped a dude's ear off, right? Peter's just just a little bit volatile. He's a little bit unpredictable. He's not really the guy that you want to go and confront. Maybe that's why Paul did it publicly, right? But here's the deal. If we love somebody, if you love somebody in your life, 
And you can see that they are on a dangerous pathway. The most loving thing you can do is what? It's to confront them in love. It's to address the path and the dangers that they're heading towards. Now listen, this, we're talking about somebody that you know, somebody in your life. We're not talking about uh, you see a guy on the street and you don't like the bumper sticker on his car. Uh, don't, don't be that guy, right? You're just trying to argue and fight with everybody even if you don't uh, know him. This is, Paul is not giving you a license to be a jerk. You understand that? Nod your head if you understand that. Paul's not giving you a license to be a jerk. But look, there are some of you, I know, you just can't confront people. You refuse to because you're, you're scared. You're scared of what people are going to think. Listen, so, some of you have known for years that you're supposed to share Jesus with someone and you refuse to do it. Maybe it's somebody in your family. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's somebody you knew in high school or college. And God has been telling you through his spirit for years that they need to hear about the hope that they can have in Jesus and you refuse to share it with them. Some of you need to confront uh, family members or, or friends who claim to be Christians, but they're just, they're just straight up gossips. They just talk about everybody behind their back, never talk to somebody about anything. They just go behind their back and chat it up about them. They're just gossips, claim to be Christians. All they do is gossip. You need to confront those people in your life. Some people in your life, some, some friends, some family members, some of you have family members who put on a mask at church and they go home and they're bigots and they're racists. And you will not confront them because you are afraid. You're afraid of what they will say to you. You're afraid of what they will think of you. Listen to me. The gospel frees you from man's opinion. Frees you from that. So friend, live for Jesus instead. Let him sort out all, all the details. Let him sort out the blowback from that. You live for him. You please him. Don't worry about what other people are gonna say. And Paul picks it up in verse 15. He's about to get a little bit technical here with a theological idea. And so I'm gonna do my best to kind of break it down in an understandable way. Verse 15, Paul says, we ourselves, he's talking to Peter again, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, you know, people that are pagans and have no framework of who God is. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, the Jewish law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one, no one will be justified. And here's what Paul said with all that fancy biblical language. And listen, this is, this is one of the most important truths you'll ever hear in your life. It's this. You cannot, you cannot work your way to God. You can't work your way to God. So stop, stop trying. Paul is reminding Peter of what the gospel really is. So Paul's like, bro, listen, you, you know that we cannot get to God by our works. You know that we can't get to God by following religious rules and rituals. We can't get to God by what we eat or by what we don't eat. None of that justifies us before God. It is only through faith in Jesus that we can be justified before God. 
But Paul is saying, man, there, listen, there is one way to God. It is only through Jesus and not all this other junk. Don't forget that, Peter. And that's a good reminder for us as well, especially in a culture that absolutely screams to us that we just need to be good people. Just be a good person, our culture tells us. Just do more good than you do bad and everything's gonna work out in the end. And listen, that is just another way of saying your works can save you. They cannot, friend. Your works cannot save you. The prophet Isaiah wrote in, uh, in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament Listen, this is what he had to say about our good works. Isaiah said, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts, our our good deeds, us trying to be good people, are like filthy rags. Like filthy rags. I won't get into the Hebrew wording that we translate filthy rags, what that means, because I don't want any of you gagging or throwing up in church this morning. You can look that up later on your own. But here's what Isaiah was saying. Even the good stuff that we do, even the good works that we do are polluted oftentimes by wrong motives and sinful hearts. Isaiah was saying the same thing that Paul was saying to Peter. You cannot work your way to God. We need a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. Paul picks it up in verse 17. He says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Here's what Paul is saying. The Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, those things all serve a really important purpose. They show us just how wicked we are to the core. You say, Chris, that's not good news this morning. Yes, it is. And here's why. They serve as a mirror into our souls. See, I could come out there and ask every single one of you. We could just go down the Old Testament moral laws one by one, right? Have you ever lied? The answer for every single one of us would be, yes, we have lied. Have you ever cheated? Yeah, you're guilty of that too. Have you ever coveted? Yep, you're guilty of that too. Have you ever lusted? Yep, we're all guilty of that too. Have you ever loved anything more than you love God? Man, we could just go through this list and as you answer yes again and again and again, you would get a sense of condemnation. Just this realization that you, in fact, are not a good person, that you need a Savior. And listen, that's good. That's good. We all need to come to the realization that we are hopeless to save ourselves. And yet the law, for all that it does for us, for the mirror that it is into our souls, it can only show us the problem. It cannot remedy the problem. Are you tracking with me? It can show us our disease, but it cannot heal us of our spiritual disease. I've told you this uh, story before when I was a little kid. Uh, growing up in, in South America, I got really sick one time, and I wasn't getting better, and it got worse and worse and worse, and couldn't figure out what it was. I didn't know what it was. Parents didn't know what it was. Doctors didn't know what it was. And so finally, uh, the doctor said, hey, well, I don't, I don't think there's, I don't hear anything in his chest, his lungs. He doesn't have a feet. I don't think there's anything going on in his chest, but let's just, what the heck? We're, we're kind of desperate. We're at a loss. Let's take a chest x-ray. 
So I took an x-ray, and they found out that I actually had pneumonia, and my lungs were filling up with fluid. I was probably uh, weeks, if not days, away from death. Now, that x-ray, in many ways, saved my life. That x-ray told me what my condition was. It told me what my disease was. But could that x-ray cure me of pneumonia? Absolutely not. All that x-ray could do is tell me that I needed the cure, which unfortunately happened to be a lot of really big needles with penicillin. That was the cure. The x-ray couldn't fix me. It just told me what I needed to fix me. That is what Paul is saying. He's saying, man, the Old Testament law showed me that I had an incurable spiritual disease. But if I went back to the same Old Testament law for my cure, I'd be a dead man. And so I died to the law so that I might be alive in God. And Paul's going to use that as a segue right back into the gospel. Verse 20, one of the most powerful verses ever written in Scripture. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now this is a coffee cup verse. We plaster this on T-shirts and bumper stickers and pictures hanging in our living room, all sorts of places. And even while doing that, most of us miss the revolutionary truth that Paul just lobbed to us in this verse. If you really, if you really ever get what Paul just said, your life will absolutely change. You will have, you will have more freedom you will have more confidence than you ever thought possible because here is what, listen, here's what Paul is saying. Believer, when you gave your life to Jesus, the old you died. In that moment, when you gave your life to Christ and you passed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the old you died. And so regardless of how you blow it this week, understand it's been paid for. You now live under the grace of Jesus. So the person, the the you who stands condemned by the law, that person died with Jesus on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. Paul is saying, believer, you're free. You're free. Live like you're free. And so what that means for me, what that means for me personally is that when I blow it this week, and I promise you I'm going to blow it this week, when I blow it as a dad, when I blow it as a husband, when I blow it as a friend or a son or a pastor, when I blow it this week, I, don't, I do not have to sink into darkness and depression. I don't have to, I don't have to sink into a, a state of self-hatred and doubt that God really loves me. Because, and, and hear this, my, my faith is no longer in my ability to perform. My faith is not even, not even in my ability to be a good person. I gave up on that a long time ago. My faith is in the Savior who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see that, believer? That is Freedom. Not, 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 we're not talking about freedom to, to live in unrepentant sin. We're not talking about just having a license to live in 
uh, blatant sin. We're talking about freedom to know that I belong to Jesus. And he's changing me one day at a time. And so when I fall, and I will fall, I can get up, I can dust myself off, I can, I can repent, I can grieve over my own sin, and then I can look back at the gospel of grace and be set free to pursue Jesus all the more. And here's the last point that uh, Paul gives us in this text. You might want to write this down. My identity, your identity, believer, is in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. That's why Paul could write to the Philippians when talking about all of his accomplishments. And we all know Paul was a very accomplished young man, wasn't he? He was brilliant. He was highly educated. He climbed the ladder of success very young in life. And this is what Paul said about all his accomplishments as he wrote to the church in Philippi. I'm going to read it to you. He says this out of Philippians 3. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. The Greek word literally can be also be translated into animal dung. I, I, ca- I count everything I've accomplished in life as animal excrement compared to knowing Jesus in order that I might know Christ. See, Paul says, listen, my Jewishness, my, my heritage, my ethnicity, my nationality, my accolades, all the diplomas hanging on my wall, all that means nothing to me. It's garbage. It's dung to me. Why? Paul, because my identity is in Jesus and him alone. See, church, when we find our identity in Jesus, not in our jobs, not in our wealth, not in what people think of us, not in our skin color, not in our political preferences, when we can say with Paul, all of that is rubbish. It's all animal waste in comparison to my identity in Jesus then and only then will we experience the unity that God desires for his people and the freedom that he has designed for us to walk in. When your identity is secure in Jesus, you get to live in freedom. Paul finishes out this portion of his letter with verse 21. He writes this, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Here's what Paul is saying. I will not go back to religion for my salvation. I will not go back to religion. I will not go back to the law. I will not go back to trying to keep all the rules because if I do that, if I'm trusting in that for my salvation, then I'm saying that Christ died for no purpose. Paul again is saying, my hope, your hope, all of our hope. Listen, it's not in your performance. It's not in how good you can be or how well you can keep the rules. It's not even in any religion. It's not even in being a good person. Your hope is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you want freedom, if you want peace, look to the cross. Look to Jesus, friend. That's the only place that it's found. As we close this morning, would you bow your heads with me just for a moment? We're going to pray in just a minute, and then we're going to sing a song. We'll be done.
For some of you, I'm sure that even though for many of you, you grew up in church, you would call yourself a Christian. For many of you, you've put your faith in something other than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And in so doing, you've believed and you've trusted in another gospel. Some of you need to lay down your religion. Some of you need to lay down your performance meter. And you need to trust in the simple gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus plus nothing else. Others of you are here and maybe you're not even, you're not religious at all. And you're not religious because you've made yourself the God of your life. So really, at the root of it, you are religious. You're just worshiping yourself as God instead of worshiping God. And I'm just telling you, in either case, if you haven't already, you are going to absolutely, at some point in your life, train wreck yourself. You're going to train wreck your life. Whether you're depending on your own performance to save you, or whether you are so self-righteous that you don't even think you need to be saved. The cure to both of those diseases is Jesus. Jesus stands ready to save the religious and the irreligious because they're both just different types of the same spiritual cancer. God loves you. He died for you. Salvation is a free gift, but you have to receive it. You receive it by repenting. That just means turning from your sin, turning from living your life your way, turning from being the God of your own life and turning to Jesus and giving your life over to him. And I want you to know if you've never done that, you can do that this morning. You can do that in a minute when we pray. After we sing, I'm gonna be up here in the front. There are gonna be other prayer counselors here in the front. I would encourage you, come talk to us. We'd love to talk to you. Tell you how to begin your journey with Jesus. Let's pray as we close. Father, would you help us to see the futility in trying to work our way to you by our own performance or by keeping religious laws, by trying to be a good person, Father, I pray if there's somebody here, maybe, maybe just one person here who needs to experience that freedom that only you can provide through Christ, I pray that they would find it this morning in Jesus. I pray that even right now, they would just cry out in their heart. Just pray, God, I need you. I can't do this anymore. I'm tired of being my own God. I'm tired of train wrecking my own life. I made a mess. Jesus, I need you. I need you. I want to give my life to you. I want to start a brand new journey with you. I want to follow you starting right now. The rest of my life, God, I'm yours. And Father, if they just prayed a prayer like that, or if they want to pray a prayer like that, God, I pray that you'd give them courage in a moment after this song to come up and talk to me, talk to somebody else. 
Just let us know what God is doing in their hearts so we can walk alongside with them. And Father, for those of us who have already tasted freedom, have already tasted abundant life through your son Jesus, God, would you help us, would you remind us to go back to the simple gospel every single day of our lives? Remind us, Father, that we are living from a place of of overflow of your love and your approval, not as a way to, to earn those things. Jesus already did all that for us. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for grace. Thank you for freedom. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus that we ask, we pray all of these things. Amen. Church, would you stand and sing with me?